I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our season on Asia Does Asian America. For most of Saturday School, we've been looking at how Asian Americans portray themselves in media, and now we're looking at how Asians have portrayed us. Last week, we were in the 70s, and this week, we're moving into the 80s. And we're moving from Japan to Hong Kong, but specifically how Japan and Hong Kong have portrayed folks visiting the United States or living in the United States. Yeah, we have another love story, Yeah, which is fun. The, a lot of these are love stories. I don't know if that speaks more to the Asian imagination of the U.S. or just our imagination of, of Asia. <laughs> like, we're just picking the love stories, like... Huh, Chow Yun-fat in a really popular romantic drama. Let's do that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I think maybe on that note, we should mention that, yeah, we're talking about a Hong Kong film today um, in the 1980s, but preceding this, there is a long tradition of Hong Kong filmmakers going to the U.S. to make films, and a lot of them are martial art films, films about, like, rumblings in Chinatown. Think about, like, Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx. So, yeah, there is an action tradition in Hong Kong cinema being set in the U.S. that we are ignoring because we just want to talk about love stories. (laughs) But something important happened in the 1980s, which is in 1984, the British Empire, which was the colonizer of Hong Kong, signed a deal with mainland China to hand over Hong Kong in 1997. So as the story goes, between 1984 and 1997, a lot of people in Hong Kong were sort of scared for their future. Think about this is also around the time of Tiananmen Square, just this idea that we don't know if we're going to have any freedom when we're handed over to China. And so this also sparked a immigration fever. So a lot of people in Hong Kong especially wanted to move. And as a result, I think a lot of audiences in Hong Kong were curious about the lives of overseas Chinese people or the lives of Hong Kong immigrants in places like New York or San Francisco or LA. I think in the last episode, we talked a little bit about how the U.S. can be sort of like this faraway romanticized place. But in martial arts movies, what do they use the U.S. location for? That's actually really interesting because i think they use it sort of as a lawless space like the wild wild west like literally like going to the west and so today's film an autumn's tale from 1987 directed by mabel chung kind of does both like the u.s is both a romantic space but also a scary space where you don't know what's happening it seems dangerous it doesn't seem like a civilized place necessarily yeah that's what kind of struck me about this version of the u.s that was different from the last film so the story is about a woman played by cherry chung we think it's Cherry, not Cherie. Her Cantonese name is like Char Hong, so... She plays Jennifer, who is traveling from Hong Kong to New York City to go study with her boyfriend. She has this idea of the U.S., but when she gets there, it's very, for lack of a better word, urban. It's a Chinatown film. Set in New York, and this is 1980s New York, so this is like pre-Giuliani, a grimier New York. It's grimy. Yes, that's a better word. And she's told by her relatives, you know, you're going to be taken care of by this guy who's a leader in the Chinatown. You're in good hands. Denba! 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 So she thinks she's going to be staying at like a nice place. 
studying in a nice university. But in reality, this neighborhood, there's a lot of garbage everywhere. It's kind of a slum. <laughs> She's staying in a place with Chow and fast character. His name is... Samuel Ping. Samuel Ping. Sam Ping. And he is kind of a troublemaker. <laughs> As most hot romantic love interests are. He picks her up from the airport and he's just driving the most banged up car. Like oh, the yeah. door doesn't even stay on. She has to hold the door in so it doesn't open while she he's driving. And the way they portray how he drives, it's like you can't even imagine how badly he's driving until you see it on screen. It's sort of like Asians have a stereotype for being bad drivers, but he's sort of like, I don't care and I'm angry and whatever. It's not like I'm a bad driver, so watch out. It's like I'm a bad driver, get out of my way. Exactly. This entire street is for me and my friends. Pre and post gambling. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she is not impressed. She is not impressed at all. Despite the fact that he looks like Chine Fat. Yeah. Because her boyfriend, he's a scholar. They're from different worlds. Different worlds. <laughs> but so she decides to go look up her boyfriend and surprise him by showing up unannounced. And of course, she runs into her boyfriend cozying up with another girl. Of course. And not just any girl, a English-speaking Chinese girl. Yeah. All their conversations are in English. And that already like creates this barrier of he has assimilated to the point that he is no longer even linguistically in the same plane as her anymore, let alone romantically. So like assimilation becomes emotional distance. Yeah. He has a conversation with her where he's like, hey man, the girls are more liberal-minded here. <laughs> Yeah, I wrote that down too. I think you should use this opportunity while you're in the U.S. to broaden your horizons and experience different lifestyles. <laughs> what a what a man this guy is. What a stand-up scholar. But of course, like she happens to be living with Chow Yun-fat. She's on the top loft and he's on the bottom. And then he's just sort of like, if you need anything from me, just stomp on the ground. <laughs> so that's kind of like their dynamic. Yeah, because then he becomes kind of the apartment manager for her too. Yeah, yeah. And he helps to like paint her place. He put a board on top of a bathtub oh. and called it a bathtub desk. I know. <laughs> he has to improvise out of life. And that's that's super attractive. Yeah, yeah. And pretty useful if you are an immigrant. Yeah. Because you're in a place that isn't going to take care of you. It's not a friendly world. So yeah, yeah, people like this suddenly emerge as maybe more important than the scholar type who might not be a handyman. Yeah. Definitely. It was so interesting because we know Chow Yun-fat as sort of this Hong Kong film legend, plays a lot of gangsters, very badass, known for like the John Woo films. But like in this movie, he's playing this man who has like unrequited love. He's the one who can't get the girl. Yeah, which is very strange. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such like a teenage puppy love. Like it's so innocent. Because Shining Fat has a teenage puppy look. You get the sense that as crude as he is, as unrefined as he is, he's also not a player. Yeah. That itself is his, his own kind of moral value yeah. that is contrasted with her not crude boyfriend who is unfaithful. And ultimately, in, a, in the logic of a romance, that's more important. Yeah. You'd rather be with the person who's faithful than the person who is upwardly mobile. I mean, you would also prefer that they don't gamble and get in fights. So, <laughs> but it's Chow Yun-fat. <laughs> but but Chow Yun-fat needs to prove to himself that perhaps he can stop gambling or that he can stop being so crude. Chow Yun-fat's character is associated with a certain kind of Chinese restaurant, like very working class Chinese restaurants. This is where immigrants work versus 
her boyfriend who invites her to an upscale Chinese restaurant where the dishes are pronounced with French and there's like women in chungsam on the side playing pipa, <laughs> which is like like a super bougie kind of Chineseness. So there's also like two kinds of Chineseness at play yeah. here. One that's like a working class one and one's like a very upwardly mobile, basically a whitened version of Chineseness. And that's also what she has to decide between. Yeah, and Chow Yun Fast character, he calls everything like a Yankee this and a Yankee that. <laughs> well, he's wearing like a, a Mets cap. <laughs> he, like the way that he pronounces certain things, like there's a whole running joke that he calls woman Chabo, and you're like, what does that mean? He's like, you know, Chabo, like trouble. Are you his friend? Yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Just, just take off. Understand? His unrefinedness becomes a certain cuteness that makes the process of immigration more palatable. But interestingly, she is here to study. She's not here to become a working class gambler. Yeah, but at the same time, she's not someone who came from money. So she has to work as she's studying. So she's taking babysitting jobs. And the babysitting job that she does is really interesting too. Because she's taking care of a kid who is the child of a 1.5 or second generation. So she's also taking care of a super westernized Chinese kid. And so there's like different kinds of Chinese American communities that are being depicted here, which is pretty sophisticated compared to some of the earlier generations of Hong Kong films, which is, this is just Chinatown and it's just how they are. Whereas here, like, you know, you're really thinking about the different levels of assimilation and of class difference, and then how Jennifer navigates all of this in order to have the life that she wants. Yeah, and they portray New Yorkers very multi-ethnic. Yes. Although, <laughs> um, I'm always, like, whenever I think of this movie, I think of that, that early scene when Chine Fat is driving like a madman. And he gets in a race on the streets with a car full of Latinos, and it becomes pretty racist. Well, he's fighting with everybody, basically. He's fighting with the Mexicans. He's fighting with the black people. But it sets up that rambunctious scene, I guess. That is a nicer way of putting it. Right, right. And it's rambunctious, but it's also like he is somebody who's not afraid of racism. Yeah. He, he doesn't feel uncomfortable here in the U.S. with people of different races, which is, again, different than how an Asian American might narrate that experience because an Asian American would be fully aware of racism and how maybe we shouldn't say things like this. This is where the difference is when you have a film that's being made by a Hong Kong studio. They can indulge in that kind of rambunctiousness that an Asian American might hesitate before doing. And as a result, you have different kinds of characters. While I was watching this movie, I kept thinking, is there a better movie about New York Chinatown? Um, not West 32nd? <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I haven't even seen West 32nd. I mean, so this I is don't... obviously better than West 32nd. <laughs> I'm okay having that on record. I mean, it has more money and more star sure, power, yeah. even though West 32nd had John Cho, but not like 2019 John Cho. Yeah. It had like, what, 2006 John Cho. You're comparing John Cho with Chow Yun Fat, though? Yeah, I know. Wasn't there another New York Chinatown film recently with like Justin Chan and Leonard Wu? I will also go on record to say this is better than Revenge of the Green Dragons pretty easily. The one that I think could match this is Wayne Wang's Eat a Bowl Tea. Ah, the Russell Wong one? Yeah, the Russell Wong one. Okay, come on. <laughs> I think what we're saying is it's, still, it's up for grabs. And of course, there's like Hollywood films that are set in New York Chinatown, but let's not worry about this. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about not just New York Chinatown movies, but about Chinese people in New York Chinatowns. And not you just using the Chinatown as a cool backdrop for your little investigations or whatever it is you're doing. 
right. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that, yeah, we're talking about this movie as a Hong Kong studio film that's being shot in the U.S., but the key here is director Mabel Chung, who grew up in Hong Kong, but ended up studying film at NYU. So the portrayal of a woman going to New York to study, I don't know how autobiographical it is, but I think that's something that Mabel Chung would have been very familiar with. And I think also famously, she fell in love with Alex Law in New York, and he ended up becoming her lifelong partner as a screenwriter. He also wrote the film. So love is also part of the equation, lest we forget. Ah, oh, so great. Two films in a row where love is found. There's something about this that seems so believable. And I think partly it's Chinese fat. But I think it's just because the subtleties of how love plays into the immigrant experience. It just comes off really naturally. And also her aspirations as a immigrant to the United States and how he surprisingly becomes what she's been looking for. What makes it charming is he sees the world that she wants to enter into. Like he knows that she's not here to hang out with someone like him or to be in the world that he represents. He wants her to be an academic and he wants her to study and meet these bougie friends, both like the bougie Chinese and the white friends. And so, so he too sees like maybe there's a, there are worlds that he can't cross. Yeah, yeah. Part of why he's not making a move isn't just shyness, but also like maybe I'm not what she needs right now. And that just makes it more touching. Is this movie easy to find? I think so. I mean, when I was doing some research for one project I was doing, which was about Chinese movie theaters in LA, movie theaters that specialize in Chinese language films in Los Angeles and places like San Gabriel Valley and in Chinatown, I found ads from the 1980s where they were showing this movie. Oh. And I've always found it interesting that, yeah, someone in Hong Kong would be interested in this story, but also like a Chinese American might be especially interested in this story too, because it's in the 1980s, it's about as close as you're going to get to Chinese American representation. Yeah, I mean, there are Wayne Wang films and Peter Wang films, but... But sometimes you just want Chow Yun-Fat. Sometimes you just want the equivalent of the hottest star in the world to play you. This is Chow Yun-Fat in the 80s, right around the same time that he's getting a lot of popularity with his John Woo movies. This was a big year for him. I think this is also the year he did Prison on Fire. I think this might have been the year after he did Better Tomorrow. And that was that was the one. I mean, he was already famous, but a Better Tomorrow just vaulted him into the next level. And this is a time when like Hong Kong actors were doing like five to ten movies a year. This was just one of them. He won Best Actor at the Golden Horse Award. Best Film at the Hong Kong Film Awards. Ah, uh, yeah. Best Film. So yeah, it was a pretty popular film at the time. And today it's considered one of the all-time classics of Hong Kong cinema. There is a Blu-ray of it out that came out in Hong Kong. It hasn't been distributed here in quite the same way. But there are ways to find it. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories of voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Talis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Set School. Next week, your assignment is to watch Sana Muli Muli, a.k.a. I Wish It Happens Again. Class dismissed.
Hey, have you heard of the Potluck Podcast Collective? It's a collective of podcasts that features unique stories and voices from the Asian American community. And one of the podcasts is Books and Boba, hosted by Marvin Yue and Vera Yu. Every month they give a roundup of all the Asian American books that are coming out. And they not only have book club episodes, but they also do interviews with authors. Recently, they did an interview with Harry Lian, who wrote the Pea Sprout Chen series, a middle grade series about a new student and immigrant to an academy that teaches the art of martial arts figure skating. Martial arts figure skating and a middle schooler named Pea Sprout. I know what my kids will be reading in five years. Check out that and the rest of the Potluck podcast at podcastpotluck.com. See you next week.